Of course, there are many, many different types of damage, and I'm just bunching them into seven categories. What's the point of that? For each category, there is a corresponding generic intervention. And if we address all categories reasonably well, then the benefit will be far better. We're talking definitely a few decades of additional healthy life rather than just a couple of years. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. The desire to resist or avoid aging is as old as humanity itself. We actually age from the moment we come into the world, but the signs of aging do not become noticeable until later in life when our ability to repair the damage accumulated by living itself starts to exceed our ability to repair that damage. Then we start to notice signs, gray hair, wrinkles, aches and pains, less energy, and especially in some areas, we have less of what we had before, making aging an especially bitter pill to swallow. There have been several serious but fruitless efforts to try to delay or even improve aging. However, we are now at a point where affecting it might actually be possible. We're not quite there yet, but we have identified the best places to devote our efforts in order to make this happen, and research and labs across the world are hard at work investigating these areas now. Today's guest is biomedical gerontologist Aubrey de Grey. He is the chief scientific officer of an organization called SENS Research Foundation, dedicated to advancing the science in promising areas around aging. The organization also does its own research, but it also funds academics at other institutions doing related work, and it serves as a mini incubator for certain age-related businesses that spin out of the ideas that are generated there. Aubrey is also the editor-in-chief of the academic journal Rejuvenation Research, and has authored several books. The Mitochondrial Free Radical Theory of Aging, and Ending Aging. Personally, I've been aware of Aubrey's work for quite some time. In 2003, I read the book Ageless Quest by MIT aging researcher Lenny Guarenti, which launched an interest on my part to learn more about this subject. It was only a few years after that that I started to see Aubrey's name popping up more and more. But having this opportunity to interview him gave me good cause to take an even deeper dive into his work, and I must admit, the more I investigated what he's doing, the more impressed I've become by his contributions. Aubrey is not just a scientist, but he's also a philosopher, a historian, and a theorist around the subject. He has an obsession, I'd say, with getting this right and not accepting previously unbreakable limits as unsurpassable laws. But at the same time, he's a pragmatist, so he has a nice balance between realism and just the right amount of craziness to do what's never been done before. This interview is longer than my other ones, but personally, I found it flew by. So let's get to it. Aubrey, great to have you on the show. Let's just jump right in. Obviously, the subject of today's discussion is aging, how to age better, and even how to delay or avoid it altogether. Every human understands aging on some level. But from your scientific perspective, what is aging? Sure, certainly. There are two kind of pithy definitions of aging that I often mention, which are both intended to not only explain what aging is, but also to demystify it. One of them is I emphasize the relationship between aging and disease, which is one of those crazy, stupid questions that people constantly ask that has no answer because it's kind of a poorly formed question. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a question of terminology, whether aging is a disease. I like to say that it's neither a disease nor not a disease. It's kind of an uber disease that incorporates and encompasses everything that goes wrong 
with our physical and mental functioning late in life. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the ways in which we try to develop medicine to address the diseases of old age and the aspects of what people tend to think of as aging itself should not be nearly so disparate as they currently are. At the moment, we have this rather curious tendency to treat the things we call diseases of old age as if they were infections, as if they were like diseases of early life, which is basically never going to work because the diseases of old age are side effects of being alive. Conversely, the things that we call aging itself get so left out in the cold that most people don't even think of them as amenable, even in principle, to medical intervention. I say that aging is a kind of uber disease that encompasses all aspects of age-related ill health. The other thing I always point out is that aging is not actually a phenomenon of biology, if we come down to its real roots. It's a phenomenon of physics, in the sense that the accumulation, the creation and accumulation of damage is something that all machines with moving parts, whether they are alive or not, are inevitably constrained to actually do to themselves. It's just the second law of thermodynamics, really. If we look at the question again of what we can do in principle with medicine against aging, then we can actually get quite a lot of good pointers by looking at how we already successfully maintain the fully functioning lifespan of simple inanimate machines well beyond the point that they were designed to last. And that's, of course, why I talk a lot about vintage cars and such like. I found this analogy you created very helpful in my own understanding. So if you will, please explain it further. Sure, yeah. So, of course, vintage cars, you know, cars that are over 100 years old, they were not designed to last that long. They were designed to last maybe 10 years. The fact is, the reason why they have lasted so much longer than they were designed to is well understood. It's simply because their owners have performed comprehensive, periodic, preventative maintenance on them, rather than waiting until the car falls apart and getting a new one the way most of us do. There is this thing in manufacturing called planned obsolescence. You know, Henry Ford pioneered it by finding out how to make sure the car broke down and needed to be replaced at a reasonably predictable longevity. But of course, that whole concept of planned obsolescence only works because we are lazy. We have no particular interest in doing any more maintenance on our vehicles than the law requires. So that means that the overwhelming majority of cars really do fall apart around the time that they are expected to by the manufacturer. It's exactly the same for the human body. The human body, of course, was designed by evolution rather than by people. And the other thing, of course, is that the human body is vastly more complicated than any simple man-made machine. But that doesn't make any difference to the fundamental fact that the human body does damage to itself as a consequence of its normal operation, whether it's because of breathing or because of nutrient metabolism or whatever. And that damage accumulates and the body is set up to tolerate a certain amount of that damage without significant impairment of performance, but only a certain amount. Eventually that amount is exceeded and we start to go downhill and eventually we don't work at all. Okay, got it. So this damage is an unavoidable part of life, but if we learn to do the right type of maintenance, we can delay the health-impairing effects of aging and even live longer. So before we get into the details, I've heard you argue that this is the single most important issue facing humankind. And some refuted that with arguments such as, culturally, we can't afford to have everyone get very old. Environmentally, we can't sustain that amount of people. And even philosophically, living forever is unnatural. Describe to us why you think this is the most important problem in the world and why we should make it a priority to try to aggressively address it. 
Of course, whenever I'm faced with this question, my first reaction is always, how is it possible that anyone could not think this? Because at the end of the day, what is a problem? A problem is something that causes people dissatisfaction or pain or whatever. And it is completely incontrovertible that aging causes far more suffering worldwide than everything else put together. That's all I think I need to say to remind people of in order to justify the assertion that aging is the world's biggest problem. Of course, the attitude that many people have, most people I would say even, even to this day, is that yes, aging is a terrible problem, but it's not a problem that is something we ought to be thinking about because there's nothing we can ever do about it. Mm -hmm. And of course, that arises from misunderstanding and oversimplification of the nature of what aging is, the idea that yes, aging is a phenomenon of physics, but that it's somehow an inevitable phenomenon that nothing can be done about, rather in the same way as we can't create perpetual motion. And of course, that's, shall we say, a rather severe oversimplification. Once one gets past that, as you say, people have this rather curious tendency to fixate on problems that might be created as a consequence of solving the problem we have today, the problem of aging. And of course, there's nothing wrong with raising these concerns, with identifying these anticipated problems. But the question is, what does one do having raised those concerns, having thought of those concerns? And what most people do, I'm afraid, is they wring their hands and uh, change the subject. And as far as they're concerned, they don't want to talk about the whole thing anymore because their alleged concern is an open and shut case that we do not have any actual merit in doing anything about aging in the first place. And I find that rather frustrating for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, because the specific concerns that are raised are invariably concerns which do have very, very good answers. For example, probably the number one most popular concern is that if people stopped getting sick when they get old, then they would stop dying when they get old, and that means that they would fill up the planet. And we've already got a rather severe overpopulation problem. So this is an unwise thing to do because it would make matters even worse. However, this, of course, completely ignores the fact that the problem of overpopulation is not a problem of how many people we have on the planet, but rather how much pollution those people are actually creating, whether it's in terms of our carbon footprint or anything else. The question is, are we in a position to get the best of both worlds by increasing the carrying capacity of the planet faster than the population is increasing as a result of new technologies that diminish the amount of fossil fuels we're burning and such like, so as to uh, make us less polluting in the first place and allow more people on the planet with less environmental impact? And of course, the answer is absolutely. It's extremely clear that the advances that we're seeing in renewable energy and artificial meat and goodness knows what all add up to a very rosy prospect in terms of increasing the carrying capacity of the planet. If you add to that the fact that when one actually does the numbers and projects forward in terms of uh, trajectory of global population resulting from the elimination of aging, it's not nearly as scary as most people instinctively predict. Uh, we published an important paper on that about a year or two ago, which was developed by a very respected forecasting group in Denver. On top of all that, the fact that these concerns have perfectly good answers, there is also the fact that there's a sense of proportion argument. In other words, whatever your particular concern might be, whether it's overpopulation or dictators living forever or pensions or whatever, we have to ask ourselves, even if some bizarre worst case scenario arose whereby we were unable to sidestep this problem and get the best of both worlds, we have to ask ourselves, is the problem that we would be creating actually worse than the problem we have today? And to be perfectly honest, 
nobody chooses to be honest about that. They do not actually look at the question and say, well, okay, if we ended up having an overpopulation issue such that we had to make a choice between, on the one hand, having fewer kids than we would like, or on the other hand, having everyone get Alzheimer's, the question is, which would we actually choose? It wouldn't be a nice choice to have to make, but which would we actually choose? And I don't find many people saying that we would choose the Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. And the third thing, of course, which is perhaps the most open and shut, unclad argument, is the question of freedom of choice and whose right it is to choose. The way that this goes is like this. Supposing we today, in the position that we have in terms of the information we have about the future, with or without the defeat debating, supposing we say, oh dear, I don't like the sound of this overpopulation thing, let's not go there, let's not develop these therapies then what we would be doing is we would be limiting the options for humanity in the future because we would be delaying the arrival of these therapies. And that means that if we happen to be wrong, if actually humanity of the future either has succeeded in developing plenty of renewable energy and such like, or alternatively they have decided that kids are actually something that they are willing to forego in return for not having Alzheimer's disease, then they're going to look at the options available. and They're going to say, oh dear, we do not have therapies to stop people from getting sick when they get old. But we could have had them if our forefathers had got the hell on with it and actually developed these therapies. I would be very impressed. And I do not want to be the kind of person who is involved in condemning an entire cohort of humanity of the future to an unnecessarily painful and unnecessarily early death just because I thought I knew better than they did about how the future was going to look. Let me summarize. For one, if you compare the risks and the benefits of achieving successful aging treatments and therefore reduce its consequences that currently affect virtually everyone, Pursuing this wins out if reduced human suffering is your hallmark evaluative measurement. Second, the issue of overpopulation is really one of human waste, which is addressable. And third is an ethical issue that not pursuing a solution to these problems will not only affect us, but future generations. We're making a choice for them by doing nothing and prohibiting them from having a better life. Oh, correct. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, great. So uh, I have a several part question and I'll lay out the different parts and then we can try to address them one by one. First part is, how has aging been addressed over the last 30 years? The second part is, what do you think is the most advanced prescription, given what we know today, for better aging right now? And then, what do you find exciting in terms of whether it's supplements or biotechnology? And then, lastly, we can address really the future. But maybe we can start with, what is treating aging been like up until today? Sure, yeah. And I'm actually going to answer that slightly differently from how you asked it, in the sense that I'm going to go back longer ago than 30 years. So really, there have been three false dawns in the attempt by humanity to address the problem of aging. Of course, the idea that aging is a problem, even though it remains controversial, was first discussed and raised a very long time ago indeed by Roger Bacon in the 13th century, if I remember rightly. So the idea has been around a long time that we really ought to develop medicine against it. Unfortunately, the ways that we have been thinking about aging have led us astray. The first false dawn can be simply described under the heading of geriatric medicine. Geriatric medicine essentially comes down to treating the specific components of age-related ill health as if they were infections. In other words, as if they were diseases that could be cured, could be eliminated from the body. And to this day, billions and billions of dollars are spent trying to develop such medicines. But because the diseases of old age are side effects of being alive, or else they wouldn't be diseases of old age in the first place, that's obviously not going to work. You can't eliminate something that's a side effect of being alive without eliminating being alive. 
So it's completely misguided, and the only reason that people cling to it is because they've got nothing else. One can make very modest progress in postponing the ill health of old age in various ways by pretending that these diseases are infections and that they can be eliminated, but that progress will inevitably be very modest because the processes that are driving those diseases are continuing to proceed, and therefore the any kind of geriatric medicine pretty much by definition is going to become progressively less effective as the person gets older. Yeah. So that is the first mistake that humanity made. And it's been about 100 years since people started to realize that that was a mistake and started to think differently, which is where the whole field of gerontology came from. And gerontology really got going as a result of the observation that there is a great deal of variation in the natural world with regard to the rate of aging. Some species clearly accumulate damage more slowly than others and live longer than others. And of course, even within a species, there is some variation, albeit much smaller. So people thought, well, okay, if we study this really, really, really hard and we figure out as much as we possibly can about um, what underlies this variation, then maybe we can exploit it medically and end up with things that will postpone the ill health of our old age by essentially cleaning up our metabolism and slowing down the rate at which damage occurs in the first place. And that all sounds very splendid in principle, but that too has utterly failed to deliver any kind of effective medicine to postpone the ill health of old age. And if we ask why, we can again see a very straightforward would answer, namely that metabolism, the way that the body actually works, is fabulously astronomically complicated and fabulously astronomically poorly understood. It's really, really hard to actually describe what's really going on in the body. So sure enough, this just hasn't worked. And by the 1970s and 1980s, people who were studying the biology of aging had pretty much come to that conclusion that I've just described, with the result that it actually became rather unfashionable, in fact, almost rather verboten, to even discuss the idea of doing anything about aging in any kind of important publication, like, for example, a grant application. And it instead became, you know, when I'm feeling particularly flippant, I tend to compare gerontologists of that era to seismologists who, look, they understand that the thing that they study is bad for you, but they have no aspiration whatsoever to actually doing anything about it. So yes, it wasn't very good. It was a rather miserable time to be a gerontologist. Luckily, I wasn't around at that time. (laughs) So that was phase two. And again, you know, a complete full storm. People got pretty interested back in the early part of the 20th century, but it all faded away. So then a very big thing happened. And now I am coming up to about 30 years ago, or slightly less. A couple of labs in the US made some fantastically important discoveries about the ways in which one could alter single genes in laboratory organisms, and the result would be that the organisms would live considerably longer than normal, perhaps as much as twice as long as normal back then, and now it's up to a considerably larger factor. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? It also sounds very, very contradictory to everything I just told you about the reasons why the idea of looking at the way the body works and why different organisms age at different rates was so unsuccessful. It sounds like, hang on, the metabolism is really complicated. How come some simple intervention like a single mutation could actually have this effect? Now, we shouldn't, in retrospect, have been so surprised because right from the beginning when these mutations started to be discovered, it became apparent that the genes in which the mutations were occurring were genes that were intimately involved in the body's response to something that people normally call calorie restriction, which in simple terms just basically means starvation. And that response, the fact that organisms tend to live longer when you don't give them as much food as they would like, that had been discovered way back in the 1930s. It had been just kind of ignored as a bit of a curiosity for a long time, but since the 1970s, it had been a major theme of 
of gerontological research. And so, you know, it shouldn't have really been a surprise if you could do a simple dietary intervention, namely reducing the quantity of calories, then a simple genetic intervention shouldn't have been much of a surprise. But it was. And the result was that for a while, this discovery was also kind of ignored or at least sidelined. But eventually people started to realize that, wow, this changed everything. Somehow there was some kind of sleeping giant in the system, in the bowels of the complexity of metabolism, that could somehow be awakened and fight aging harder than the body fights aging normally. And maybe we could actually, you know, get this going in humans as well as a medical intervention. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But unfortunately, this talk turns out also to have been a complete false dawn for reasons that, again, should have been obvious to everybody right at the beginning. Namely, that you can only turn on sleeping giants that actually exist. In other words, if it turns out that the corresponding sleeping giant that responds to famine or to anything else in the human body is somehow less powerful than the ones that exist in short-lived organisms, then too bad. You're just not going to be able to get the same effect by the same kind of intervention. And unfortunately, that's exactly how things are. There is a very steep inverse correlation between the natural longevity of a species and the extent to which that longevity can be increased using calorie restriction. Mm -hmm. And the fact of that inverse correlation is, in fact, a bleeding obvious conclusion that one can draw from basic evolutionary theory. It essentially arises simply from the rather well-known fact that long famines happen less frequently than short famines in nature. And, and sure enough, not only did we have theory, we also had data. We also knew since way back that you could multiply the lifespan of a nematode worm that normally lived a few weeks by a factor of maybe five by starving it in the appropriate way, whereas the best you could get in a mouse or a rat would be about a factor of 1.5, 50%. And if you tried it with dogs, it was 10% or so, and people have tried it with monkeys, and they've got a few percent if they're lucky. So the data were there. And yet, people were continuing to fixate on that. And I have to tell you uh, the sad news that, in fact, very many gerontologists, I would go so far as to say most gerontologists, are still fixated on that for reasons that afflict the whole of science, namely the fact that science is a career and one builds on one's past work and one tends to have difficulty abandoning one's previously adopted beliefs in favor of new ones. Uh, this is, of course, memorialized rather well in this famous quote from Max Planck from more than a century ago, where he said, science advances funeral by funeral. <laughs> so yes, what are we left with? Well, luckily, we're left with sense, of course. The gerontological community, for some reason, failed to observe until I came along about 16 years ago now, the fact that the pathway from being alive to being dead, in other words, from metabolism through damage to pathology, that pathway can be interdicted not only by cleaning up the rate at which damage is created, but also by repairing that damage after it has been created. You don't have to repair all of it. You don't have to repair it particularly often necessarily. You just have to repair it well enough and often enough so that the overall amount of damage that the body is carrying around stays below the threshold that the body is equipped to tolerate. In other words, stays below the point that causes pathologies. Mm -hmm. And the way that I was able to get this idea off the ground was, of course, not only to say, well, hang on, you know, you seem to have missed this abstract point, but also to actually flesh it out so that it wasn't abstract at all. And to say, here are the types of damage that we need to fix. There's not really much dispute about this. No new type of damage has been discovered or even hypothesized for a very long time. And it turned out that that's still true, luckily. So this idea is standing the test of time very much. 
And secondly, here are the various ways in which these types of damage can be addressed, can be actually repaired by corresponding therapies, either therapies that already are existing or almost existing, or at least therapies where we can see a clear step-by-step pathway from what we can already do to fruition, which is, of course, the pathway that Sense Research Foundation has been pursuing ever since. This is a good segue to bring us to the four R's to address aging, which I've borrowed and reworked slightly from one of your presentations. These four verbs, resist, replace, remove, and repair, are approaches to address the seven main causative factors of the ill effects of aging. Let's discuss these causative factors. Sure, absolutely, yes. So first of all, let us stand back for a moment and define the term damage, because of course everything that I'm talking about revolves around this thing, damage. So I define damage very broadly. I define it to mean any aspect of the structure and composition of the body at the molecular level or the cellular level that changes progressively throughout life as a side effect of normal metabolism, of the body's normal operation, and that eventually, once there is too much of it, contributes to the ill health of old age, to the loss of mental or physical performance. That's a very broad definition, as you can tell. But luckily, even though it's very broad, it's quite useful. The next thing I do is I subdivide this concept of damage into just seven major categories. These categories are not abstract at all. They're very concrete things. I'll go through them in a moment. And the key thing about this is, number one, this classification into these seven categories seems to be really, truly valid. I have been challenging people for more than a decade now to improve on it, to actually come up with types of damage that fit into my definition of damage, but that do not fit into my seven categories. And it hasn't happened. I seem to be getting away with it. So that's nice to know. The other thing about this classification is, of course, there are many, many, many different types of damage, and I'm just bunching them into seven categories. What's the point of that? You know, you can do that in a billion different ways. The point is the interventions. For each category, there is a corresponding generic intervention, an approach that may differ in detail from one example within the category to another, but only in detail. The basic thing is the same. So now I'm having, with all that preamble done, I'm now ready to tell you the categories. The first category is loss of cells. In other words, cells dying and not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells. Very simple concept. Obviously, if that's going to happen over time, the number of cells in the affected tissue is going to decline, and eventually there won't be enough cells for the tissue to do its job. How do we fix that? Everybody knows how we fix that already. That's the best-known one, the furthest developed one as well, namely stem cells. Mm -hmm. That's what stem cell therapy is. We program cells in the laboratory into a state where we can inject them into the body, and then when they get there, they will divide and transmogrify into cells that will replace the ones that the body is not replacing on its own. That's all that stem cell therapy is. And for emphasis, stem cell therapy is a big, big research field. And the reason it is is because different stem cell therapies have different details. But the reason it's a field is because all stem cell therapies also have a hell of a lot in common. So it's a reasonable thing. And this matters because it means that when you've got one stem cell therapy working really well for one particular tissue, then the extra stuff work that you need to do to get the next stem cell therapy working will be much less. You'll be able to piggyback off all that you learned in the trial and error process of developing the first one. And that concept, that principle applies throughout everything I'm going to say. All right, so what's the next type of damage? The next type of damage is having too many cells because they are dividing when they're not supposed to. And of course, that is cancer. That is pretty much the definition of cancer. Right. There are loads and loads of ideas out there for what to do about cancer, and we haven't had much success over the years. 
things are looking very rosy right now as compared to the past, even as little as five years ago, because of very smart and ingenious advances in a field called cancer immunotherapy, where people are figuring out how to tip the balance of the arms race that exists naturally in the body between the ingenuity of the cancer and the ingenuity of the immune system. Mm -hmm. And I am fairly optimistic that that will lead to pretty damned comprehensive treatments of cancer fairly soon. However, it might not. And one thing that I think everybody has learned about cancer and indeed about the whole of aging over the past many years is that it's a bad idea to put all your eggs in any one basket. So what we are doing is pursuing a much more ambitious and elaborate approach to combating cancer, which pretty much everybody agrees would absolutely, definitely really work if we can actually implement it. But the challenge is implementing it at all, because it involves a good deal of gene therapy and stem cell therapies, and it's pretty complicated. Nevertheless, we are pursuing it. And the reason we're pursuing it is because basically nobody else is. This is generally how we prioritize our own activities at Sensory Research Foundation. We do almost no stem cell therapy, even though it's a very, very important part of the sense portfolio, simply because we don't need to. Everything that needs to be done is being done perfectly well by other people that are well-funded and our very limited amount of funding is best spent in focusing on the areas that are more neglected. Filling in gaps, yeah. Okay, so it's category number three. Category number three is also an aspect of having too many cells. And you may think that's very odd. Why would I split that description into two categories? The answer really goes back to my explanation of why I had these seven categories at all, namely it's all about the intervention. The other type of way in which you can have too many cells is if cells don't die when they are supposed to. First of all, one might think, well, that's actually pretty strange. Most people overlook that kind of category because they think, well, well surely cells are never meant to die. That turns out not to be true. The immune system is a fine example of a case where it's absolutely vital that cells should die after they have done their job in order to make room for other cells. And this process is impeded, is impaired in late life. And the reason why we regard it as a separate category is because the elimination of cells that are around because they're refusing to die when they should is much different than the elimination of cells that that we have too many of because they're dividing when they should not. Essentially, it's because cells that are hanging out and not dying when they should are not undergoing natural selection. They're not nearly so clever as cells that are dividing when they shouldn't. And for that reason, it's much, much easier to get rid of them. And also, P.S., we don't need to worry about any side effects like getting rid of cells that we didn't want to get rid of, or at least we don't need to worry nearly so much about that as we do in the case of cancer. So we are pursuing something called suicide gene therapy which is a genetic approach that is already a routine procedure in the laboratory, in mice and such like. We want to develop this as a clinical therapy to eliminate cells of this nature. This is something that has actually had a lot of airtime over the past five years or so since a group at the Mayo Clinic were able to make a very preliminary but nevertheless very exciting breakthrough with regard to such a thing. And since then, that group have gone private and companies have been created to identify small molecules, drugs that can preferentially kill these cells. We think that at this point, it's very unclear whether such drugs can actually be developed that will work reasonably well without too much in the way of side effects. So we are sticking to the genetic approach. But even the genetic approach, actually, I'm pleased to say, is beginning to attract the interest of the private sector. So close colleagues of ours have been able to start a company that is focused on that, uh, which is still only a very early stage startup company, but nevertheless, it's very important to be doing that. We're trying to do that kind of thing as much as possible so as to attract money from people who are more keen to make money than to give it away. 
So that's number three. Allow me to do a recap, if you will. Please, please go ahead. Okay, so thinking of things that will kill us over time as a function of living long enough, we have cell loss and cell atrophy. That's bucket one. We want to replace these either lost or dysfunctional cells, and a promising means to do this is via stem cell therapy. This is a big field of research. There's many different techniques on how to do it that are being explored, but it's well-researched and it's very promising. Next, big bucket, we have cells that won't stop dividing. This is cancer. And you're excited about the promise of cancer immunotherapy as a means to address this. And I agree, this is a very exciting area that I've been following. And then we have cells that are death-resistant. But we have suicide gene therapy that get these cells to die when they should. And so those are the first three big buckets that we've discussed. And to go back to the four R's, we want to replace lost cells, we want to resist cell overdivision, and we want to remove cells that just won't die like the cyborg in Terminator 3. Correct, correct, yes. And that was a good time to do a summary because now I can move from the three categories that are all about the number of cells we have to the categories that are more at the molecular level. Okay. There are two categories that are to do with stuff that goes on inside cells. And then after that, I have to do with the stuff that goes on in the spaces between cells. So within cells, the first major category is mitochondrial mutations. Mitochondrion is this very important part of the cell that does basically the chemistry of breathing, the combining of oxygen with nutrients to extract energy from nutrients. And the weird thing about mitochondrion is it has its own DNA. It's the only part of the cell that does. It doesn't have very much DNA. Only 13 proteins are encoded in it. But those 13 proteins are essential. And it's rather important to make sure that those 13 proteins continue to be appropriately synthesized throughout life. Turns out, unfortunately, that the mitochondrial DNA accumulates mutations vastly more rapidly than the nuclear DNA, which means, of course, that it's got a, a much greater chance of being bad for us. And sure enough, even though the details are still unclear, nevertheless, most gerontologists believe that, yes, mitochondrial mutations are indeed a major contributor to eventual age-related ill health. So what do we do about it? Well, the obvious thing you might think is to somehow do mitochondrial gene therapy to get a replacement or repaired mitochondrial DNA into the mitochondria so that the mutations are nullified. Turns out that that isn't going to work because of the way that mitochondria are maintained and recycled during life. It turns out that essentially we are running a losing battle against natural selection at the level of the mitochondria. So instead of that, the approach that we're pursuing, which is an approach that was first put forward more than 30 years ago, is to make modifications to the mitochondrial DNA so that we can put copies of this modified DNA into the nucleus, into our normal chromosome. The modifications are designed so that when the proteins are synthesized, they are transported back into the mitochondrion so that they can do their job just as if they had been synthesized within the mitochondrion in the natural way. And that sounds terribly science fiction at first, but it turns out not to be nearly so hard as it sounds because the mitochondrion is actually a really complicated machine that is composed of well over a thousand proteins. And all the others, all but those 13 proteins I mentioned, are already encoded in the nucleus so that the machinery for transporting proteins into the mitochondrion already exists. And it's very generic. It just works on anything that looks right. And the way that that machinery works, that import machinery, is well understood. It's been well characterized for a long time. Now, of course, it's not as simple as what I just described. If it were, then it would have been done by now. But it isn't too bad. 
So the way that we have to do this is to identify the right kinds of modification to make to these genes so that we can put these backup copies into the nucleus. And people, when they first thought of this 30 years ago, had a bit of success and everyone got very excited. Then they hit some roadblocks and everyone got very despondent and gave up and tried to do easier stuff because that was the easy way to get promoted and tenure and grant applications and so on. And I came along and kind of revived all of this about 15 years ago and pointed out that certain of the reasons that people had for giving up were premature. And a few other breakthroughs have been made by other people and also some minor breakthroughs by us. The result is that we are now far closer than anyone else has ever been to actually getting this working. We're still a long way away. We were only working in cell culture. But just last week or the week before, we were able to publish a paper on this in a very nice, prominent, peer-reviewed journal showing how we've been able to get two of these 13 genes working in the same cells at the same time and actually rescuing a lot of function mutations in the natural mitochondrial copies. So that's all pretty good. Now, Aubrey, are these the mitochondrial transcripts like humanin and MOTS that are modifying the activity of the mitochondria and to keep them healthier longer? Okay, great question. So not many people have heard of humanin and the other mitochondrial transcripts. This is an area that's just come to the fore over the past few years. And there's still a lot that we don't know about those transcripts. So no, I am not talking about those. I am talking about the 13 protein coding genes that have been understood and studied for many, many more years than that, for 30 or 40 years. These very small, short proteins, such as humanin, the function is still pretty unclear. And also, it's very, very unlikely that they are going to be part of the problem. In other words, that we would need to make backup copies of those in the nucleus. The reason I can say that is because they tend to come from a part of the mitochondrial DNA that is not normally damaged during aging. The parts that are normally damaged are in a different part of the DNA and the ones that are going to affect the 13 protein. So we're not worried about human and its friends yet, though we are keeping a careful eye on that. Got it. All right. What is the other type of damage in the inside cell? This one's much easier to explain than the previous one because all it is waste products. Molecular garbage that the cell creates in the course of its normal operation, and then for whatever reason, it does not have a system for breaking the garbage down or for excreting it. Whenever any type of garbage is created rapidly, evolution does create a system for either excreting it or breaking it down, because if it didn't, then we wouldn't get to be old enough to reproduce, which would be not what evolution likes. But some types of garbage, it turns out, are created really, really slowly, which means that they only accumulate to a level that's problematic for the cell and for the body by the time that evolution has ceased caring about us because we have already reproduced. And so that turns out to be vital as the driver of some of the most important and prevalent diseases of old age, not least atherosclerosis, which is the number one killer in the Western world because it's the cause of heart attacks and strokes, and also macular degeneration, which is number one cause of blindness in the elderly. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do about that? Well, the reason why this garbage accumulates is because we don't naturally have machinery to break it down. So what we're trying to do at Sense Research Foundation is to create exactly that machinery, to essentially augment the machinery that we do have to break other things down and allow it to have a broader arsenal, a broader portfolio of targets. The way we're going about that is by identifying other species that can break down the target substances of interest. Turns out that it's quite easy to find bacteria that can break down more or less whatever you want, as long as it's organic and it's got energy in it. So we are actually been quite successful. Maybe as, as much as eight years ago or so, we first found bacteria that could break down 
oxidized cholesterol, which is the main driver of atherosclerosis. So we started publishing on that way back then. But of course, just finding the bacteria is just the first step. Then you've got to figure out what genes they have, those bacteria, that allow them to break down the target substance. Turns out that's also not very hard. Standard genomic techniques can address that pretty quickly. So we were able, sure enough, to find out what genes were involved. So that's easy. First step is the really hard one. Let me ask real quick. Are these autophagy-resistant targets that we're after? And on that note, can you tell us what autophagy is? And then if you can tell us if this new technology is addressing what autophagy cannot. Okay, so first of all, no. Actually, this is not about autophagy. Autophagy is actually rather misunderstood because everyone talks about it as something that's really vital for the maintenance of cells and the elimination of garbage. And it is absolutely important for the elimination of garbage. But it does not eliminate garbage on its own. What autophagy does, actually, it's simply a transport device, a transport machinery that moves stuff from wherever in the cell into this place called the lysosome, which is the place where the garbage disposal really happens. So that means that actually what happens in atherosclerosis or in macular degeneration or whatever is not an impairment of autophagy. Autophagy itself is basically working fine. It's just that the, 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 there ends up being, if you like, a traffic jam whereby the autophagy machinery doesn't have anywhere to dump its cargo because the lysosomes have been impaired in their function because they're failing to break down stuff because they've been poisoned by stuff that they don't know how to break down. So autophagy itself is not the problem. The problem is at the end, the thing that autophagy delivers to the lysosome. Now, in the lysosome, there are loads and loads of enzymes, upwards of 60 enzymes that break stuff down. So that's why the lysosome is so good at breaking down such a wide variety of stuff. But, as I say, that portfolio of stuff that the lysosome does break down is not universal. There are some things that do not get broken down. Oxidized cholesterol is one of them. And it turns out that that oxidized cholesterol poisons the lysosome. In fact, poisons some of the important proteins in the lysosomal membrane. And the result is that the lysosome ceases to be able to break down stuff that it normally would be able to, and everything goes to hell in a handbasket rather rapidly. So, what do we do? Yeah, we find these bacteria that can break down the stuff. Then we find the genes that they have that encode the enzymes that allow them to break down stuff. Then is part three, which is the hard part, namely identifying ways to modify those enzymes so that we can put the genes for them in human cells and they will still work. Human cells and bacterial cells are very different in their internal structure, so there's a lot of tinkering to do, and that took us years. But a couple of years ago, we were able to publish that we had achieved this and that we could, only in cell culture initially, of course, but still, we were able to show that cells could be protected against certain toxic concentrations of the major type of oxidized cholesterol that accumulates in atherosclerosis. And they could tolerate, they could grow and survive in higher concentrations of that stuff than if they didn't have our engineered gene. So that was very wonderful. And that too has been taken care of it now. The work that we did was in fact taken on board by one of our major donors, an internet entrepreneur from Phoenix, and from the company, hired one of our people, and they are proceeding with that. And actually, I mentioned already that macular degeneration, the number one cause of blindness, is the same kind of aging problem. Even though we ourselves had not been able to get quite so far on that project than we had on the atherosclerosis project, nevertheless, again, a company, in this case in upstate New York, has taken that on and is pursuing it and getting nice funding that we couldn't get. So that's very good. All right, so now I've dealt with the two categories of damage inside the cell. The other two categories involve damage outside the cell. Let me ask you a question about that last part. Do you see the insertion of bacterial genes that are effective at doing this cleanup process into human DNA as a potential use for the gene editing technology CRISPR? 
Okay, so this is a bit parenthetical. So CRISPR is a fantastic technique, and it's getting more fantastic all the time, for modifying the genome in various ways. In particular, it's great for making small modifications. So, for example, inactivating a gene. But what it can't do is insert genes. It can't insert large amounts of DNA, like a couple of kilobases or whatever. And in order to improve ability to do that, which is one thing that would certainly be required in order to introduce these bacterial genes, or for that matter, to introduce the mitochondrial genes I was mentioning earlier, one thing we would have to do is to somehow combine CRISPR with something else that was also very, very safe and effective, but which had the complementary capability, namely to actually insert large amounts of DNA. And we're working on that too. We have developed some mice, which are great proofs of concept of this, using a system that's actually, that actually originates with bacterial viruses. It would take me an awfully long time to explain the details of this, but long and short of it is, yes, we're on that case. Great. Now, what about damage outside the cell? Well, first category of damage outside the cell is waste products, just like the last category. And again, the reason why I call that category a different category is because the way to address it is different. Turns out that conceptually, the way to address molecular garbage outside the cell is probably the simplest of all the seven categories, because all we need to do is vaccinate against it. If you can persuade the body, the body's immune system, that this molecular garbage outside the cell is foreign, then the various cells of the immune system will simply engulf it and get it inside the cell. Now, you may think, well, that won't do, will it? Because you've still got the problem of adding bacterial genes or whatever. Turns out that actually that's not the case. The machinery inside the cell in the lysosome is, as I said, really, really powerful already. And the machinery outside the cell for breaking stuff down is really primitive. It's very, very poor in its breadth, which means that by and large, the stuff that accumulates outside the cell is stuff that the body already has the genes and enzymes to break down just so long as the stuff can get into a different place, namely the lysosome. And that's exactly what happens when you vaccinate against it. So the result is that in the case of the best-known type of molecular garbage outside the cell, the amyloid, the senile plaques that are accumulating in Alzheimer's disease, this has already been done. People have developed vaccines that can, not only in mouse models, but actually in humans, can cause the immune system to get rid of this stuff. And it works. They actually do get rid of their amyloid. Now, the clinical benefit is very variable. Usually, in fact, in a large number of people anyway, there is basically no benefit simply because the amyloid is not the main problem that their Alzheimer's has. Some people have a lot of amyloid and not much in the way of other types of damage that happen in Alzheimer's disease. And sure enough, those people do benefit somewhat. But really, this is a great example of why aging is complicated and the treatment of aging is just going to be pretty complicated too. It's a divide and conquer approach that we need. We're just developing more therapies to address the other aspects of Alzheimer's. And when we put them all together, then we can expect a very good result. All right, so that's number six. And the final category of my seven-point plan is again outside the cell, but in this case, it's not molecular garbage, it's cross-linking. So there is this lattice of proteins that we have. It's called the extracellular matrix, and it's all over the body. It's a bunch of proteins that are linked together in a very regular array. That's why I call it a lattice. And that regularity gives our tissues their biophysical properties, in particular their elasticity. Some of our tissues, it's very important that they should be elastic in order to do their job. So one example is the lens of the eye, which, of course, has to be deformed by the muscle around the eye in order for us to see things close up. But there's actually one type of tissue in the body where the loss of elasticity happens during aging, just like in the lens of the eye, where the consequence is very life-threatening. 
and that is the major arteries. In the major arteries, the stiffening that goes on is the main cause of our increase in blood pressure during life. And of course, increased blood pressure causes all manner of problems like kidney failure and such like. So we've really got to fix it. Now, we don't want to get rid of the extracellular matrix you know, and make the immune system think that it's foreign or anything. We want simply to restore its elasticity. And the natural way that one might think of to do that is to recycle it, to have it broken down and rebuilt periodically or incrementally or whatever. But it turns out that that's hard. It turns out that the body has developed ways in which to build the extracellular matrix that most of the time do not actually incorporate recycling. It's just built once and it sits there. And that, of course, is why it accumulates molecular changes that reduce its elasticity. If it were being constantly recycled, that wouldn't happen. So what we have to do is somehow work with what we have. And the ideal situation is to identify drugs that can simply react chemically with the chemical bonds that cause this stiffening. Because those chemical bonds are actually well understood now. We have been studying this for a long time, more than 30 years since the whole concept of stiffening from these bonds was first thought of. And there's now a great deal known about the chemical reactions that create these bonds and indeed what their chemical structure is. And the really good news is that the chemical structure of these crosslinks, as they're often called, is very, very different from the chemical structure of anything that the body lays down on purpose, which means that a small molecule might very easily be developed to react with these crosslinks and break them without having significant side effects on molecules that we want to leave alone. Of course, as with everything else, if it were that easy, it would have been done by now. And sure enough, it turns out that these crosslinks are actually quite hard to break, but we're getting closer. And actually, another big breakthrough that we were able to publish just less than a year ago now from the group that we fund at Yale University is a way to synthesize large amounts of the main culprit, the public enemy number one in cross-linking, in the test tube from small, cheap reagents. That's vital because now that we can make grams of the stuff whenever we like, we're in a position to do a bunch of experiments that were completely impossible before. Things like raising antibodies against it, growing bacteria to see if they can break it down, that kind of stuff. Those experiments are all happening now. And going pretty well, actually, though they're not at the level where we can talk about them yet. But they couldn't be done before. So we essentially were able to unblock a scientific research logjam that had existed for at least 20 years. And we're very happy and proud that we were able to do that. Okay, so we've reviewed the seven things that cause the ill effects of aging. The first three related to cells. Replace lost cells and cells that have atrophied. Next, resist cell overdivision. And third, remove cells that just won't die. And then we talked about mitochondrial mutation technologies and how they might just help our mitochondria remain functional for longer. Then we discussed how cleanup of the intercellular junk with the insertion of bacterial genes can in fact do a better job than our own at cleaning up this junk and how the accumulation of it ultimately leads to things like macular degeneration, the leading cause of blindness in humans, and can also, by addressing this, prevent things like oxidized LDL, which causes some major forms of heart disease. Then we move to discussing the removal of extracellular junk, and we can use our immune system and vaccination technologies to do this. And lastly, we discuss the extracellular matrix. This seems very challenging. This matrix doesn't recycle, but we now understand the chemical links that make it up much better than before. We might just be getting closer to reducing the stiffening that happens over the course of the aging process. Decent summary? Very good indeed. <laughs> okay, good. So do you think we can get incremental benefit by addressing these factors individually, or do we need to address all these areas simultaneously in order to get any benefit at all? Or is this a situation where once we can address each area adequately, then we see real synergism that allows us to extend lifespan beyond 
what is currently possible and in really profound ways. Yeah, so it's pretty much like that, yes. Each one of these things, with the exception of mitochondrial mutations, has been very clearly identified as the number one driver of one or another major disease or disability of old age. So, for example, molecular garbage inside the cell, as I mentioned, is the driver of atherosclerosis. That means that for each one of these things that we develop, we can expect that that subset of people who turn out to accumulate that type of damage faster than the others, because everybody has slightly different rates of accumulation of different types of damage. The people who do that, like for example, the people who tend to die of heart disease before they die of cancer, those people will benefit. But because these variations in the rate of accumulation of damage and the variations in the amount of damage that can be tolerated before therapy emerges. But because those variations are relatively small, it means that the benefit will be relatively small, that we'll be able to stop people from, let's say, getting heart attacks and strokes, but they will die of cancer anyway only a few years later on average. So yes, there will be incremental benefit, but I really mean incremental. Whereas when we fix absolutely everything, even if we fix absolutely everything reasonably poorly, just fairly well, not completely perfectly, if we address all categories reasonably well, then the benefit will be far bigger. We're talking definitely a few decades of additional healthy life rather than just a couple of years. So extending lifespan and compressing morbidity, where we live to, let's say, 130 or 140 years old, and importantly, most of that time is with excellent health. All right, now I want to jump on you a little bit there, because yeah. compression of morbidity is one of my least favorite phrases. Okay. The problem here is that compression of morbidity is defined as postponing the ill health of old age by X, and not postponing death by X, postponing death by less than X, if at all such that the difference between the two is reduced, is compressed. Now, I have never really been much of a proponent of this. It seems to me that absolutely we want to postpone the ill health of old age by as much as we can. But having done so, the goal is simply to postpone that ill health more. And yes, the longevity effects are just a side effect, but... The fact is, when you are healthy, you probably don't want to get sick and die really quickly, even if you happen to have been born a long time ago. So I don't really believe either in the feasibility or the desirability of compressing morbidity. I think we should think entirely in terms of postponing morbidity. And the really good news is that this is realistic with these rejuvenation therapies that we're talking about, these damage repair therapies, because the effect of getting, let's say, 30 years additional life from therapies that I've been discussing and enumerating in this interview is that we will buy time. We will have the opportunity to use those 30 years to improve the therapies, not only in terms of their convenience and cost and so on, but also in terms of their comprehensiveness. In other words, there will be aspects of damage that we couldn't really quite hit very well with the first therapies, and we got away with it, we got our 30 years. But in those 30 years, we developed ways to get rid of some of those types of damage too. So the same people, let's say age 90, will be able to come in having been treated, let's say, 30 years previously to get rid of most of their damage. They're back to being biologically 60 because they've accumulated a lot of the difficult damage that the therapy didn't work on. But some of that difficult damage can now be repaired with Sense 2.0, shall we call it, so that they end up not having to come back for their third re-rejuvenation until they're chronologically 150 or something. So I really do not think that it's appropriate to make all this fuss about compression of morbidity. And I think, to be honest, the reason that many of my colleagues are so fond of talking about it is just because people who are really paying attention to the real science and the real prospects find it an intuitively attractive idea and they will write big checks rather than because it makes any kind of logical sense. 
I guess I say it because maybe there are unknowns that are having an effect that would be affecting our health, independent of the mechanisms that you've laid out. Although, as I've heard you say before, it's becoming increasingly improbable that finding an eighth factor out of the ones listed is actually even possible. But I guess it's saving room for the unknown. You got it. But I want to make sure that you understand we're bound to find new things that are going wrong in the body. The thing I want to emphasize is that the overwhelming likelihood is that those new things will fit into the existing seven-point classification. There will be simply new examples within the existing category, which means, of course, by the reason I gave earlier for why the classification is useful, it means that the therapies to address those newly found example aspects of aging will be relatively easy to develop as minor adaptations of the therapies that we've already developed for the things we did know about. Now, again, it may very well be that there is an eighth category out there that we haven't found. I'm not absolutely betting against it. But here's the really good news. First of all, if there really is one out there, then it's hiding very well. And maybe the only way we can actually discover it is by going in and repairing all the ones we do know about and thereby unmasking it. Secondly, of course, we have the opportunity to look at shorter-lived species, preferably ones that are closely related to us, and you know, apply these therapies to them too. And perhaps get a bit of an advanced warning so that we see these eight categories appearing in those other animals in time before they start appearing in us so that we can start the serious business of developing therapies for them. Got it. And I love the fact that you refuse to accept ideas implicating aging or aspects of it as undressable. In order to do what's never been done before, we need people like you who refuse to accept the idea that how it's always been is how it will be. So thank you. Going back to the question, what do you think is the most advanced prescription today, given what we know, to age better now, let me ask, how many of the major aging factors that we've discussed are addressable via lifestyle? And I understand that we might only be talking about several more potential years of life, but we're also talking about many more years of health within that life. So for someone who's really interested to age better today, what's promising to you? In order to answer this properly, I have to introduce a concept that I like to call the penumbra effect. Okay. The simple, direct answer to your question is nothing at all. There is nothing that we can do to postpone, even by a small amount, the accumulation of the various types of damage I'm talking about. But as I say, that's only a simple answer. Let me tell you what the penumbra effect is. The various mechanisms that have been discovered for the accumulation of these various types of damage are not just simple bang, one-off phenomena. They tend to be multi-step systems. So, for example, cancer. Now, cancer obviously is caused by mutations in our DNA. Those mutations accumulate by a multi-step process, whereby typically, for example, a base pair or a base is chemically modified, oxidized, for example, and then most of the time it's repaired. Occasionally, the repair doesn't happen in time and the DNA gets replicated and the oxidized base is replaced by an unoxidized base, but the wrong one. And that, of course, is, a, is more of a problem. But even that can be repaired because the oxidized base will not be the appropriate match to the base on the other strand. And so, again, that can be repaired. But again, very occasionally, it doesn't get repaired. The DNA gets replicated a second time. And after that, there is no repair mechanism for fixing it. And so you're screwed. Now, the thing is that the probability that this multi-step process actually proceeding through each of the steps is all a kind of race between the processes of repair and the other processes that the cell has to do, like DNA replication. And I'm just using DNA replication because it's an easy one to explain, but the same applies to everything else I was talking about. So that means that if we can manipulate things a bit so as to slightly speed up the repair process or slightly slow down the process that repair needs to outrun, 
then we will end up with less of the damage at the end of the day. And in particular, we will end up with less of the intermediate. Now, the intermediates turn out to matter because they themselves get in the way. In the case of pre-mutagenic lesions, as they're often called in the DNA, that is not too much of a problem. But there are other cases where it certainly is. Fatty deposits in atherosclerosis, for example. So it's possible by lifestyle and diet and such like to somewhat modify the kinetics of this, the, the arm base that I'm talking about, between repair and other stuff. And the result is that it sometimes looks as though you're getting bona fide rejuvenation from these simple interventions, but you're not really getting it. You're not getting rid of any of the things that do get all the way to the end of the pipeline. And that means that you're not really slowing aging down. This kind of explains why we do see a certain amount of what looks like compression of morbidity in consequence of something like calorie restriction. We do seem to see an extension of health, even though it's slightly greater than the extension of life, which is all very well. And I you know definitely I'm not knocking it. But the critical thing to understand is the actual numbers involved, the amount that we get. Even these interventions, they may prevent certain of the more overt diseases of old age but they don't really all that much postpone the overall physiological decline any more than they postpone longevity. And as I say, calorie restriction, for example, seems to extend longevity by only a very small amount, if anything, in humans. Sure enough, people who do calorie restriction, or indeed monkeys that have been put on calorie restriction, they look healthier for a while. But ultimately, if you measure things that actually count as performance, mental acuity and so on, they don't actually have much of a postponement. Okay, but are we talking about the average effects of groups or populations versus the potential effects for a given individual? We certainly know that there are things that we can do that make us age faster by acquiring chronic disease, and therefore there are things that we can do to help us age more slowly by avoiding those things. We can age better. We just can't necessarily, by doing the right things, age significantly longer because it's going to catch up with us in one way or another. And so the real excitement for better aging, which is being much younger, much later, is yet to come. Correct, yes. I mean, let me perhaps elaborate a little bit. So I'm talking about the individual and about populations, but I am specifically talking about the difference between a reasonably well-behaved lifestyle, the kind of living the way your mother told you to, versus something particularly exotic that might be very unusual and most people might not do that might be hoped to do better. What I'm saying is the difference between those is always very small, certainly in terms of lifespan and really also in terms of health span. Whereas, I think what you were alluding to a moment ago is the, dif the opposite difference, the difference between behaving the way your mother told you to and behaving the way most Americans do, for right. example, getting overweight and smoking and such like. So yes, absolutely. The things that have been known for many decades to be bad for you are indeed bad for you and can substantially shorten your health span and your lifespan. But I wasn't referring to those. Right. I'm always very interested to explore if you're trying to be healthy, what does that mean? And fasting is becoming certainly more popular and the different techniques that were that are being used to implement that into a person's life seem practical for many. And some of the benefits for calorie restriction appear to transfer from occasional fast into real health outcomes, whether it's looking at biomarkers in humans and in animals into actual longevity. There's another thing I ought to point out about this, actually, yeah. in respect specifically of human interventions of this kind, which is that we never have the control information. People virtually never have any kind of baseline of what kind of um, state they were in before they started calorie restriction, for example. And also, we have to look at the question of who does this. It's a self-selected group. And sure enough, it turns out that the people who find calorie restriction easier to actually do are people who didn't eat very much in the first place. And sure enough, the people, therefore, who would have the least likelihood of benefit from all of this. So it's a little bit difficult to interpret. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. 
I guess it's good news for me because I like to eat. <laughs> so maybe I could stand to benefit. All right. So then the second part of that question, is there anything that is on the horizon that you feel is pretty exciting? Yes, I do. And of course, it comes back to the seven-point plan, the divide and conquer strategy. But a number of the things that really matter, that are really going to make the difference, are indeed on the horizon. I already mentioned how the elimination of senile plaques in Alzheimer's disease is basically done. It's been all the way through to phase three clinical trials. And even though, if you read the headlines, those clinical trials were unsuccessful, that's only because the clinical trial endpoints were defined in terms of actual cognitive performance, you know, the words overall effect on Alzheimer's, rather than on the actual target, namely the elimination of amyloid. Yeah. Similarly, stem cells. Stem cell therapies are moving into the clinic and clinical trials all over the place. If we look at specifically aspects of stem cell therapy that are relevant to aging, a great example that I like to mention is Parkinson's disease, which is a disease much more easy to define and describe than Alzheimer's. It's caused by the loss of cells in just one particular part of the brain, a particular type of cell. And even 20-odd years ago, there was some sporadic success in treating it with stem cells. It was sporadic, but the reason it was sporadic is basically because we didn't know very much about how to manipulate and pre-program those stem cells in the lab before injecting them. So now, of course, there's a great deal more information and expertise in that area. And sure enough, people are pretty optimistic, and new clinical trials are underway right now. And I'm certainly very optimistic that we could be talking about a bona fide cure for Parkinson's disease fairly soon. That's very exciting. Also, younger blood transfusion. I read an article recently about how Peter Thiel, who is a supporter of Sense, is very optimistic about this. Do you think that that is a near-term target that we can be excited for? And do you think also that the type of blood that would be transfused would need to be matched to the individual? So, yes, it's very exciting. It would very much be a stopgap, but it's exciting. The matching is not a big issue. It's a little bit of an issue, maybe, but it's not a big issue because the idea is not to actually infuse whole blood from other individuals, from younger individuals. The idea is to get rid of all the cells and only put in plasma. Of course, that means you get rid of most of the stuff that is specific to the individual and likely to come to the attention of the recipient's immune system. But yes, the idea here is that there is stuff in the blood that is problematic in older people, and therefore, if we can replace some or all of it, well, some of it anyway, with younger plasma, then that would be great. Now, the question, of course, then arises, why is older blood more messed up, more lower quality? And the answer just in the abstract, must be because either cells in an older individual are pumping bad stuff into the old blood, or cells in an older individual are failing to extract bad stuff from the blood, or putting less good stuff into the blood. These are obviously not mutually exclusive. And a lot of work is going on now to try to figure out what those actual active ingredients really are. There is still a lot of dispute about that, actually, because it's a hard experiment to do. Lots of controversy exists in the field, but it's a very live field, a very, very active one. And as you say, a lot of people are coming to the conclusion that they don't want to wait for that research to actually come to its logical conclusion and identify factors. They want to just sidestep that and use plasma, whatever it may or may not contain, and see what happens. That's great. I think that even though these things are in many cases not by any means all the way through regulatory approval, of course, things are being done in clinical trials. Things are also, I have to say, being done offshore. This is all going to be data that people are, of their own volition, choosing to obtain on themselves 
And with a bit of luck, that data will accelerate the path towards identifying the right factors so that the whole thing can be done much more cheaply and conveniently and indeed more effectively in the future. So you have a potential dialysis-like situation. And what is the time interval that's currently being researched in how often you need to get these sorts of transfusions? Wide range, as far as as I understand it. Sometimes people are just looking at single one-off transfusions. And of course, it's not just the time range, the frequency, it's also the amount that you put in. Some people are looking in quite small amounts of the young person's plasma, some people larger amounts and so on. Let's finish by discussing your organization, the SENS, S-E-N-S, Research Foundation, and how people can get involved to support your work. Aging research is woefully underfunded. So what can someone do who wants to participate and get involved? Sure. So yes, Sense Research Foundation is the organization that's been created around my work that is spearheading the development of these therapies. We are a public charity, a 501c3, based in Silicon Valley, California. And most of what we do is biomedical research. We also have an education initiative. We um, organize internships, both in our own facility and elsewhere. But that's a relatively minor component of what we do. Mostly, we have a few thousand square feet of lab space where we do a couple of our major projects. And we also fund research projects in university laboratories, mostly in the US, to do some of the other stuff. I mentioned earlier that we tend to prioritize work that is not being done by other people because it's difficult or whatever. But with that sole criterion, really, we essentially cover all the bases of SANS. And yes, we are far too small. Our budget is only about $4 million per year. And if we had even one more zero on the end of that, I believe that we could go at least three times faster. We can be proceeding in the science in a manner that is only limited by how difficult the science is rather than by how many dollars we can spend. And we're talking about perhaps as much as a decade of delay that is currently being risked in terms of the eventual arrival of these therapies, which, if you do the arithmetic, comes out to something in the region of half a billion lives that would be unnecessarily lost. So we're a bit upset about that. And we're doing our very best to get as much money in the door as we can. If you go to our website, sense.org, that's sense without an E on the end, so S for sugar, E for elephant, N for November, S for sugar, dot O-R-G, that is where to go if you want to give us more amounts of money. There's a nice, big, friendly donate button. But also, of course, we are ultimately in need of large donations, and anyone who happens to be interested in doing that would be very welcome if they would get in touch. And of course, anyone who knows anyone who they think might be able to get interested in doing that, the same applies. Anyone who, you know, does a podcast should um, do exactly what you're doing right now. Get the word out. The ultimate thing here is that as this is moving forward, we are increasingly being able to transition project after project into the private sector, into startup companies, which, of course, in many ways, much easier to attract funding for because funding can come from people who want to invest but who are just generally disinclined to philanthropic activity. However, it's absolutely essential to emphasize that we are still at the point where a number of the projects we absolutely believe are vital to the eventual success of sense are too early stage for that to be a viable approach. And therefore, the status of Sense Research Foundation as, if you like, the engine room of the creation of the rejuvenation biotechnology industry, that status is unchanged and we absolutely vitally need more money. I can say that this whole line of thinking has somewhat borne fruit recently in the sense that a wealthy IT professional from Germany named Michael Grieve was inclined to come to us and 
commit $10 million to our mission. And he totally understands this juxtaposition between the non-profit and for-profit aspects of it. So what he's done is he's provided us with a commitment for $5 million of those dollars to the foundation itself at $1 million a year over the next five years, and the other $5 million to go into startup companies that are taking these projects forward. One thing I should also emphasize, however, is that Michael very sensibly is interested in encouraging and incentivizing other people to do the same as he has done, whether on a larger scale or a smaller scale or any scale. And therefore, he has stipulated that the $5 million that should be spent on with the foundation should be spent as matching money. In other words, every dollar is only released to the extent that another dollar comes in from somebody else. So we are very actively looking for those additional dollars from other people. So Sense is an organization that addresses the gaps in aging research. It serves as an incubator for promising but under-addressed ideas. It does research and even supports research at other institutions and even spins off promising businesses that are developing therapies for the marketplace. So if you are a wealthy individual or organization who cares about the stuff we discussed today, the single most important issue facing humanity, and interested in making a serious impact here, this is the time and this is the place to go. And I just want to add one thing down there, which is, of course, the whole thing is predicated on the new philosophy this, if you like, this fourth wave of gerontology that succeeds all the three full storms I mentioned earlier on. The idea that the real way to fix aging is to develop rejuvenation about biotechnologies, damage repair strategies. This is an idea that I put forward maybe 15, 16 years ago now, but that's not a very long time in the acceptance of scientific paradigm shifts. So that is, it's still very, very early days in terms of getting this out there to the extent that it will be pursued in the mainstream. And as such, every dollar makes a huge difference. Incredible. There are a few places where the money you donate can have such a massive impact dollar for dollar. I am not involved with Sense. Aubrey has not asked me to help fundraise in any way. But to the listeners out there, share this episode with your friends and family and consider finding the donate button on their website, which I'll link to in the show notes. So, Aubrey, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for your work. It's so exciting to think we're on the precipice of world-changing innovation and betterment, and you're a critical piece to the whole making it happen. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening, and come visit us soon at humanos.me.